Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is part 15 of the reading and we're continuing chapter 5. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support this podcast, but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 5 continued. At noon, the day's run made good was only 104 miles. The position 13 degrees 44 minutes north, 75 degrees 52 minutes west. That was fair enough in a gale when not racing, but I was concerned about the leeway and the track made good. The fix was no less than 35 miles to leeward, and the track made good, roughly north, was 20 degrees to leeward of the heading sailed. I was puzzled by this. I felt sure there had been nothing like as much current when I was running down to Nicaragua. The noon DR position was almost on top of my dawn fix of February the 1st. The Admiralty chart gave the current as west going, one knot. From the islands north of Venezuela to here, the current was the strongest in the Caribbean. That would account for 24 of the 35 miles, but what about the remaining 11? I could not account for them. The course for Mona Island in the Mona Passage was 061 degrees, distance 540 miles. To reach it, Gypsy Moth must keep on her present track for 225 miles, until near Jamaica, where the adverse current was only half a knot. Then on the port tack, the 470 miles until south of Mona, and finally a starboard tack into the passage. Or could I make a quicker escape from the Caribbean? Instead of tacking when near Jamaica, Another 200 miles on the present tack would fetch the windward passage, and most of that 200 would be in the lee of Haiti. Winds would be light and the current variable there. It would be a tough task for a single-hander afterwards breaking out through the caves and the islands of the Bahamas, and I would have to mug up on the information about the various passages. For 320 miles, I should be lucky if I got a few short snatches of sleep. On the other hand, Gypsy Moth would be moving steadily north to lighter winds. I decided to make for the Windward Passage. Noon, the 25th of February. Today, another poor run of only 94 miles between fixes, and Gypsy Moth sailed 123.5 miles to make good that distance. She was set 41 miles to the west-southwest by the current and the leeway in the gale. The track made good showed nearly the same angle of leeway as yesterday, 18 degrees. I would have to keep Gypsy Moth close-hauled hard on the wind if she was to make Cape Tiburon the southwest point of Haiti at the approach to the Windward Passage. Today, the 25th, is the anniversary of our wedding 34 years ago. I opened up one of the bottles of Verve Clicquot which Guilo had given me before I left Plymouth. Before I could start to draw the cork, it went off like a gun trying to blow a hole through the cabin roof. I tried to say a toast to Sheila's and my happiness together, but a gulp stuck in my throat. 34 years is a very large slice of life. Well, I drank the toast anyway, and another to Gilo's happiness. After the champagne, I tried to call up Portishead to congratulate Sheila on having survived a third of a century of married life, but it was a washout. There was not a peep out of Portishead. I was not surprised with a huge mountainous lump of land like Haiti in between. Well, I needed cheering up. The going was hellish rough, with Gypsy Moth knocking out six and a half knots hard on a four-six wind in a rough sea, 35 degrees off a wind of 25 to 35 knots. 
Day after day of this did not make for a joyful spirit. From the 0603 planet fix on the 26th, the course for Cape Tiburon, 114 miles away, was 007.5 degrees. The chart gives a west-going current prediction in this area of half a knot, but I had added an allowance for a two-knot current. The leeway for the past 18 hours had been 17.5 degrees, nearly the same as for the preceding two days, and it would have taken a two-knot current to cause that. This gave a steering course of 27.5 degrees, but I could not ease my heading of 45 degrees because a reserve was needed above 27 in case of a wind shift backing northwards. At 1400 hours, I reckoned that Gypsy Moth was now far enough upwind to permit altering course 20 degrees off the wind, and I eased the sheets of the mizzen and the mizzen staysail accordingly. Blessed, blessed peace. My new course was no promenade stroll, but it was a heavenly amble by comparison. The fatigue due to pounding hard on the wind is well known, and I can well understand that people went mad after a long period of it. I find tenseness and uncertainty about the navigation or any strain tiring too. I should have to make Cape Tiburon in the dark, and there were no lights there. If I allowed for the leeway Gypsy Moth had had all the way across, and it lessened, Gypsy Moth would be charging towards the land in the dark. If I did not allow for it, then there was a low-lying island, Navassa, 31 miles to the west of Cape Tiburon. This was shown on the chart to have a light flashing at 2 and 15 second intervals, but was it working? If not, a set to the west might push Gypsy Moth onto Navassa. I was concentrating tensely on the best way to deal with this. I badly needed a fix, but this was impossible. There were no radio beacons or radio aids, and I could not get a star fix till nightfall. However, I could use the sun to make sure I was on the right heading. I used part of the same navigation system I devised to find Lord Howe Island when flying alone in a seaplane from New Zealand to Australia in 1931. I wanted to sail to the middle of the passage between southwest Haiti and Navassa Island, say, Point H. The principle of what I did is as follows. Supposing that I was where I thought I was, call that point X. I waited until the sun's direction was at right angles to a line joining H and X. In astronavigation terms, both H and X were then on the same circle of equal altitude of the sun. The circle was so large that part of it could be regarded as a straight line. I worked out what the sun's altitude would be from anywhere on that circle or line. Then I observed the altitude with the sextant. If the sextant reading was greater, say, 30 minutes than the calculated one, then Gypsy Moth must be correspondingly nearer, by 30 minutes, to the sun. That is, she must be that amount, 30 minutes or 30 nautical miles, off course on the sun side of the line between X and H. My sun position line at 1700 hours showed that Gypsy Moth was only one and a half miles west of the course for H. The leeway had almost completely stopped. This was very strange, though it did agree with my feeling that it had eased. How could the current suddenly cease to flow? I acted on it, changing course accordingly, but could there be some mistake in the sights? How could the current vanish almost suddenly? I would have been less anxious had the sights shown that the current was persisting. An hour and a half later, at nightfall, 
I took a three-star fix with great care. This confirmed it. No leeway. From having too much current, I seemed to have passed abruptly to not having any. By the star fix, Gypsy Moth was 19.5 miles southwest of the nearest land, Gravis Point, in the southwest of Haiti. There was a light on this, but tantalizingly its range was only 9 miles. Point H, halfway between Cape Tiburon and Navassa Island, was 53 miles to the northwest. The track to it would be roughly parallel with the coast and within 10 miles of it at Cape Tiburon. The required heading was 310 degrees and Gypsy Moth would run into land if the heading changed 18 degrees or more northwards. At 2100 hours, I could see the mountain range on Haiti silhouetted against the night sky. The range runs east-west from 2 to 20 miles inland, with the highest peak of 7,400 feet. I cannot see any of the land to seaward of it, or identify any peak. For hour after hour, I periodically swept the northern horizon with the night glasses, but could pick nothing up. At 0123, the DR position was logged at 11 miles west-southwest of Cape Tiburon, and sometime about then, I fell asleep on the chart table and woke an hour and a half later to find Gypsy Moth headed 340 instead of 310, as she had changed her heading whilst I slept. I felt guilty at placing myself in the hands of fate like that at a critical time. Only 25 minutes later, I saw a weak wink of light. It showed intermittently, but after watching it for some time, I decided the blinks fitted a 10-second period framework. Although the chart gave the Navassa Island light as flashing at 2 and 15 second intervals, there was no other light within 36 miles or so, so I accepted the 10 second light as being Navassa. It was, importantly, also where I expected the Navassa light to be according to my DR. Every flash fitted into a 10 second framework and exactly 10 seconds, although some of the flashes were missing. This might have been due to waves in between obscuring it, but I doubted that. The island is low-lying, but the light itself is on a hill of 395 feet. Its bearing was due west of Gypsy Moth, and as it was also due west of Cape Tiburon on Haiti, it meant that I was clear of Haiti and could turn north. To give Gypsy Moth her due, she had been trying to turn north every time my back was turned for the past two hours. The next land, Cuba, was 90 miles to the north, so I would have a sleep. I found I was tottering and I am apt to make stupid mistakes through lack of sleep. The trade wind lost its bite after Gypsy Moth had rounded the southwest corner of Haiti and she was becalmed or merely ghosting to a faint breeze, often in the wrong direction, all day. The calm sea surface under the hazy sunshine gave me a feeling of unreality after the violent movement of the past few days. But Gypsy Moth was not to escape so easily from the Caribbean. The same conditions persisted through the night, with Gypsy Moth sometimes ghosting at two knots to a Zephyr from the south. If the expected two-knot south-going current was running, she would be nearly stationary in the darkness. The distance from the Navassa Passage to Cape Macy on the Cuban side of the Windward Passage is 120 miles, and by 0600 the next day, the distance made good was only 47.5 miles of it. Even the Windward Passage would not mark escape into the open Atlantic. There were still 180 miles to go to be free of the Great Barrier of the Bahamas, a thick ring of thousands of islands, reefs, rocks, sand spits and caves, 
most of them unboyed and unlighted. There were five likely passages through the Bahamas. The most desirable was the Turks Island Passage to the northeast by east between Turks Island and the Caicos Islands, the most favoured passage for steamers. I would like to have made it because near the end of the 1960 single-handed transatlantic race from Plymouth to New York, I dropped a Plymouth gin bottle overboard from Gypsy Moth 3 at George's Sound, Nantucket, with a message inside. Two years later, possibly after a tour round the ocean in the Gulf Stream and the Portugal Currents, the bottle landed up on the beach at Turks Island. However, after thinking about it, I was sure it would be crazy to attempt reaching the Turks Island Passage, however much more desirable, unless it could be done without attack. The Admiralty routing chart gave the average current between Haiti and the East Bahamas as half a knot. Tacking against the trade wind and current with Haiti to the south and a whole string of islands, cays and banks to the north was not for me, if I could avoid it. The next passage to consider, working anti-clockwise, was the Caicos to the northeast by north, then the Mayaguana north by east, the Acklands Islands French Cays to the north, and the Mirapur-Voss Passage leading to the Crooked Island Passage, which was also 180 miles from the Windward Passage and lying north by west from it. The Caicos was unlighted both on the Caicos side and the Mayaguana side, and to reach it would mean sailing past the unlighted sides of Great Inagua and Little Inagua Islands. I ruled it out. The Mayaguana was the one I liked best. If Gypsy Moth could hold to her present heading, she would fetch up to the leeward side of Great Inagua Island on the way to Mayaguana Island. The distance from Cape Macy to Matthew Town at the southwest corner of Great Inagua is 45 miles. At six knots, Gypsy Moth should arrive there at 0245. There is a light at Matthew Town and also a radio beacon, though I had not been able to pick that up. From there, a track north by east would take Gypsy Moth through the centre of the Mayaguana Passage, 87 miles distance, where she should arrive at 17.15. That seemed the best prospect. It should be important to arrive in the daylight so as to see the land, because there is no light at the southwest end of Mayaguana. As Gypsy Moth approached Cuba, the land looked sombre and savage, as if a storm was all over the near end of it, while the sun was shining in a summery sky 15 miles off the land to the east. At 16.36, fresh breeze was coming in and I reefed the mizzen. At 17.55, two shore bearings put Gypsy Moth's position six and a half miles offshore, but not yet a beam of Cape Macy. The sea was exceptionally rough, with short, steep and high-breaking seas. It was somewhat like passing Portland Bill in rough conditions, except that the bill is four miles long and Cuba 600, with its tip, Cape Macy, 15 miles across, compared with the bill's quarter mile. The wind was heading Gypsy Moth in towards the land, and the closer she came to the shore, the rougher it would be. If I tacked to the east away from the land, it would still continue rough for several miles before Gypsy Moth was out of the turbulence. If I could hold the present heading, Gypsy Moth might scrape past the cape without attack, in which case, although it would get rougher still, it would not last for so long. I ought to tack, but I thought it would be exciting to see if Gypsy Moth could get by. Considering there were no great waves, the seas were the most violent I have ever seen. The wind had got up to 40 knots, and Gypsy Moth was thrown, bounced, slammed. It was exhilarating because she was going through it all like a witch. 
She never would have got past the cape without tacking, but the sails were exactly balanced. This was due to the reefed mizzen, which seemed to act like the feather of an arrow and improve the heading. I could hold by about 20 degrees. It was at this point that I discovered why the leeway had amounted to between 17.5 and 20 degrees during three days of the Caribbean Sea crossing. I was standing on deck, hanging on to the mainmast weather cap shroud and watching the main staysail, the mast top and the running gear to satisfy myself that they were standing up to the terrific snatching strains they were being subjected to. And I could clearly see Gypsy Moth being cast to leeward at every big sea and sliding away on the leeward slope of waves. It would add up to a lot of leeway in a day when pinched up hard on the wind as she was. The leeway had eased when approaching Haiti, not because the current had eased, but because Gypsy Moth turned off the wind. I was not used to this because the previous Gypsy Moths had had a lot more keel and made very little leeway. Gypsy Moth was still not round the Cape when darkness fell, but I seemed to be through the area of turbulence, although the wind was still up to 40 knots. At 18.30, the Macy light, flashing every 20 seconds, was bearing west-northwest, for the north coast of Cuba was beginning to open up to view. On her heading at midnight, Gypsy Moth would pass west of Great Inagua by three and a half miles. In any case, the strong current of about a knot would have been setting her west by north since Cape Macy. That meant a six-mile set to the west so far, and as it would take another six hours before the island was abeam, I reckoned that Gypsy Moth would be giving it a handsome miss. Therefore, I could turn in and have a sleep without any worry except for going over the Clarion Bank off the southwest point of Great Inagua, where the depth shallows from 1,700 fathoms to 230. I imagined it would be very rough water there, but on consideration, I thought it would be negligible compared with the seas off Cape Macy. I thought to myself that I would look up the Clarion Bank and the Admiralty Pilot, and then, Lord, how I would love to be deep asleep instead of just dropping off all the time as I write. Later, I read up the clarion bank. No one seems to worry about it, so why should I? Good night. At 0600 on the 1st of March, I got a fix from Jupiter and Arcturus. This put Gypsy Moth 20 miles west of Great Inagua, and also 20 miles west by north of the DR position, so that for 12 hours, the leeway had been at 1.6 knots. I had to review my escape tactics. The Mayaguana Passage was bearing 27 degrees, distant 101 miles. 27 degrees had been Gypsy Moth's heading, more or less, since Cape Macy, but she had only made good a track of due north. Therefore, she would have to beat up to Mayaguana and spend another night on the way. There were no lights on French Cays or on the southwest corner of Mayaguana. There was a light on the Hogsty Reef, which had to be avoided on the way, the east coast of Acklins Island was unlighted for 45 miles. I decided that I would like to avoid both the Mayaguana and the Acklins Island passages. That left Mirapur Voss Passage, followed by the Crooked Island Passage north of it. The Mirapur Voss was bearing 347 degrees, distant 68 miles. It was lighted and appeared to be a shipping lane for traffic to the USA. If I went for that, I should reach it at about dusk, but would then have to have another hop of some 50 miles to the Crooked Island Passage without a chance of any sleep. I decided to think about it while setting more sail. That was at 0700, and at 0745 I altered course for the Mirapur Voss. 
Gypsy Moth would not be hard on the wind as until now, and so although the passage would be longer, it would be much faster. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing, and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from The Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.